0: Hello and welcome to Semaphore Cut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome J.D. Trust. J.D.,
1: thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a real pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity to join you on the Semaphore podcast. It's awesome. Great, thank you. So, yeah, please feel free to go ahead and introduce yourself. Cool. So, as you mentioned, my name is J.D. Trust. The J.D. stands for John Daniel as my first name. And I am a New Zealander. Which is why I have a bit of a funny accent. And I am the co founder and CEO of a company called Raygun that builds tools for software teams to try and build better quality products. By way of background, even though I'm the co founder and CEO today, I am a hardcore tech geek. I learned to code when I was nine. I started selling commercial software at high school on floppy disks in the 90s. Even from a young age, I was one of those weird kids that knew exactly what I wanted to do when I finished school. I even went to the careers counselor when I was about 11 years old. And I said, right, I want to have a software business one day. And he looked at me very weirdly and told me that I shouldn't do that. I was like, ah, nuts to him. I'm going to ignore him. And uh, ended up where well, I now have a software business. I don't write quite as much code today as I would like. I still do a bit at home to try and keep the skills sharp. And I love playing with new stuff like around email and all of that. But yeah, it's my day to day is leading the company, and I still just love hearing what the devs are coding on. And, you know, I, maybe I can talk the talk still. But yeah, I'm passionate about software and I'm passionate about business almost in equal levels. Great, great. Maybe you should let that guy know that you're just fine. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Mr. Wigglesworth. Yeah, I, I do remember him. He wanted me to go into some sort of hardware category around mechatronics. Even as a kid, I was like, man, I don't want to know about hardware, software. Software is the cool bit, to me at least. I often say to people that when I was nine, I felt like discovering programming was like discovering a box of Lego with an infinite number of pieces because I could build whatever the hell I wanted and I didn't have to go and bug my parents to buy more Lego. And so it was just like, this is really cool. And if there was something I couldn't build, I kind of knew that it was because I just hadn't figured out how to build it yet, not that it was necessarily impossible. That just started the addiction young. It's just been a lifelong passion. I kind of feel weird. I'm in my late 30s, and I'm almost able to say I have 30 years of software development experience, which is kind of (laughs) bananas.
0: Yeah, it's like an infinite universe, essentially, and you don't need to ask permission. That's right. Hey everyone. Samfor has published an open source book called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud native apps. Download your free copy today at samforci.com. Okay, so we can just continue on that on that software that you said that you were, you know, selling around on floppy disks. So There are certain elements that are timeless and making sure that your software works, you know, no matter the technology, the language, the clock of the CPU and all that. There are those things that you must keep track of and ensure that it's working. So maybe you can give us a brief intro around how do you help customers to make sure that their software is of like higher quality, that they can reduce bugs and maybe what are some patterns that you are seeing in that area?
1: Yeah, sure. So before I started Raygun as a business, I did work for a proper tech company for three years here in New Zealand to see how they worked. And I sort of recognized at the time that I always felt really embarrassed when there was a problem with a piece of software that I'd written and the customer would find it and report it. I would feel a bit ashamed. And so I got taught by this guy, Jeremy Boyd, and this was 2004, how to instrument my code to send myself an email when there was an unhandled error. And so I'd get these emails, you know, I'd come in on Monday and I could see all the errors and I'd kind of skim through them in my inbox and just be like, oh, okay, this one looks serious. I should just go and fix it before they find out. And I'd let them know, you know, that these things had been fixed. In a way, I look back now on both how Jeremy and I built software and One thing we were generally kind of known for was being pretty good at it. And I don't really think that that was just because we happened to be good programmers. I actually think it was because we understood that it was about the customer impact. And if the customer had a bad time, that reflected poorly on us. And so when we then started our business, we actually built a range of different products. But then ultimately in 2012, we started building our first product around error reporting that we called Raygun. So at the time, the company was actually under a different name, and it was just the name of the product. And this was really to say, you know what, the emails were handy, but nobody just wants a list of emails. There's no management tools around that. You can't understand how many customers, you can't do any data analysis to know, oh, it's just the IE11 users or anything weird like that. So we built this whole product around something that we'd actually been doing ourselves from the very beginning. And let me tell you, firstly, everybody assumes they don't have that many bugs. I've never had somebody try out Raygun and go, I don't know if it's working because I have no error reports. There's always error reports and especially large customers that come online. And a lot of people don't really do anything around error reporting or they're not reliably doing it. And so I always describe crash reporting, error reporting is kind of the black box flight recorder, which is, you know what? Stuff blows up and you need to know why it blew up so that you can fix it quickly. and. Ideally, it's about the customer, right? Giving them a better experience. And I can assure you that I didn't come up with this just for our podcast, but Jeremy also introduced me back in the day to CI and CD. So we were actually running CI and CD servers back in 2004 on the projects we were doing back then. Usually just running it on your own workstation because nobody was setting up servers and stuff for that back then. That was kind of cool. But then I kind of realized at a point If you didn't have CI and CD, it feels like a superpower when you do, right? Because you're like, oh my goodness, I can so smoothly get to production. But how do you really make the most out of that investment is to then create the feedback loop, right? I can get to prod fast. How quickly can prod tell me about what's happening to it? And that was where we stepped in and sort of say, hey, we can close the loop. You can get to production really fast. We can tell you really fast. And now you can iterate and cycle through production Blazingly quickly fixing bugs and all that, so that you have a higher quality product for your customer. And you'll hear me throughout this podcast talk so much about customers. You know, I often take team members out for, let's say, a one on one for lunch. And of course, I'll put that on the company, buy lunch company card, and they'll say, Oh, thanks, Jaddy. And I'm like, Don't thank me. You know, I was like, Oh, okay. Well, thanks, Raygun. And it's like, Well, don't no, no, wait. Don't thank Raygun. Thank Raygun's customers. That's where the money came from. As we talked about prior to this, the money's not from VCs, it's from the customer. And I always like that little story because it helps hit home to the team members. It's like, no, I'm not being nice. No, the company's not being nice. No, the customer, you did something the customer valued, right? That's really important. And that feeds into all of this is like, what about these tools we build? We have crash reporting about the errors. We have real user monitoring, which is about the performance. And now we have an APM tool as well about the server-side performance to build you a picture. Ultimately, all of that stuff, it's about faster loops to prod to ultimately make your customers happier and not be caught flat-footed on an issue that you had no idea about while customers were having a really bad time. So that's kind of how that sort of fits in together. I can keep just going on this, but I want to touch on a point you raised earlier about enabling the teams to be in control. Everything I've just said in a way actually helps with that, right? Because it demonstrates ownership of end to end of what it is you're producing through to who you produce it for. And if you were to have other teams, and typically this might be your support team, be the ones that are hearing about the faults, you know, that's a problem. I don't think she invented it, but my wife, she likes to talk about how you need to keep the pain close to the people who can fix the pain and an example of this is obviously if the only people who can change the system are the software developers the software developers have to be the ones hearing about the problems and you know the joke i always make is we all we all know the opposite of this right which is when you ring up like your bank or something and you sit on hold and you hear your call is important to us for like 30 minutes, and then you talk to a person who is entirely disempowered to actually make any change, right? They're really just FAQ people to answer the most easy, how do I reset my password? But if you actually go to them with a genuine issue, they're gonna struggle to fix the pain. And so I see a lot of this sort of tooling, the DevOps movement, all of these things, they can, it sometimes feel like a whole lot of responsibility landing on a dev team, But at the same time, the reason that you're kind of doing it is to try and say, okay, well, we can make sure that the customers are happier. We can empower those teams. And when it comes to ownership, you know, I always think it's really important that the software developers appreciate who it is they're building for. And I make some comments that are probably fairly insulting to software developers at times. and. I make those comments because I've been there and I am there sometimes, right? Which is, I can get in the zone and end up far more fixated on how I'm building the code because I love elegant code. I love thinking about how the code's going to hang together. And, and that, all of that stuff's really important for maintainability and performance and blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> what matters is the customer. So, I think a whole part about trying to get more and more ownership and control within the software teams is the more they talk about the customer, the more the teams outside of software development also can understand the software team. They're communicating effectively in the language of business because the whole business is there for the customer. And now they're talking the same language rather than you're talking about JavaScript and I'm talking about NPS scores, you know, like we can all get on the same page. We all have the same ultimate master, which is the customer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We can connect on this topic very easily because yeah, in all recent presentations that I given and I spoke to customers, like some intros, you know, fast feedback loop is the main thing. And if you don't have it, you just cannot move. You are guessing you are walking in the dark. I, of course, want to keep this podcast on a very positive note, but something that we were like discussing previously in lights of COVID, you know, why it's hard to, you know, contain and handle and understand for a lot of people. It's the feedback loop because, you know, you are giving people cars, they're driving super fast or super dangerous machines. But when you look through the window, you know, traffic is working, you know, perfectly. And all of a sudden, when we are talking about, let's say, this virus, we have a very slow feedback loop. You know, there is a lot of, you know, how people are behaving, what they are doing and so on. They're behaving very naturally. There is no feedback loop. The feedback loop is very slow <laughs> and you're making decisions based on that. If you give people cars, guess what? They are completely other beings. You can, you know, say to all of them, hey, you are performing brilliantly. There are millions of cars on the street and there are very few problems, you could say. So. Just a philosophical analogy for fast feedback loop, (laughs) where it shows that that's the most important
1: thing. It's an interesting analogy, too, because, you know, we've all walked down the street and almost walked into somebody on their cell phone, right? That's a problem. But I don't know about your country, but in New Zealand, at least, and I know in, in a lot of countries, you know, they've outlawed using your cell phone while driving, which makes sense. But there's a piece that connects in there as well. Like you say, it's like, yeah, but you can move a lot faster in a car. You just have to have that faster cycle, which is kind of what you're saying, I guess. You know, like if you want to go walking pace, cool. You don't probably need the feedback loop, but you're not going anywhere very quickly. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. This is a bit of a twist on that same thing. And I don't know if you've had the same thing with Semaphore. We actually have quite a few large enterprise customers that deliberately set out sometimes to find smaller organizations to work with because they know that that feedback loop will be faster. They know that their feedback will be heard more quickly by the people that matter. We've had a few where they go, no, we deliberately avoid the giant companies because we're just another voice. But for a smaller organization, we know that you're actually working harder to try and please us. And I always thought that was interesting. I also find it interesting as well because with the likes of Twitter and that, I feel like in the tech industry, people don't really like to provide feedback. They kind of like to be a bit more siloed. They don't like to talk to salespeople and all of that. And I totally get that because you're so used to the fact that it doesn't go anywhere. But if you're actually dealing with a smaller organization, they're usually starved for feedback. The large companies are drowning in feedback. They're trying to figure out what to listen to. A smaller organization is hungry for anything they're going to hear. And that often can mean you get heard louder there as well. Yeah,
0: this is great that you share this also for our listeners. But I think that I'm also going to steal this when people ask, why semaphore, Well, we really do listen, you know, we are small and we also react to it, yeah. It also spreads quickly, you know, you hear something good or bad with customer, you probably share it on, a, you know, your most public, you know, Slack channel. And, you know, people react to it, you know, on a very personal level even. Because, yeah, we as a team, we want to be better and There are very few people who really don't want to get better at whatever.
1: I have a leadership coach, and I know I'm drifting probably too far from the technical side here. But, you know, in terms of managing people and the way to think about it, one of the most important comments that my coach has taught me is she said, you know, J.D., you got to remember, nobody comes to work to do a bad job, right? That's not the intent. And if somebody is performing poorly, it's not usually because that was their goal, right? It's always good to keep in mind. Hey, I'm
0: going to take a quick break here and tell you that Samfor has a new book out called "CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes." If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at samforci.com. And you mentioned that you have three decades of software development experience.
1: Almost. <laughs> <laughs> almost.
0: Yeah, I want to ask, also connected to your current business, how do you see adoption and change in the industry related to you know, the service that you are providing? For instance, on our side, it's about you know, covering your application with automated test suite, and that as a practice is from what I know, not very well taught at universities. And generally, people have to bend their heads a bit, their minds, when they started you know, writing software professionally. Yeah, you have to cover it with unit tests, integration tests, and all those kinds of tests. And actually, sometimes you need to put more effort into that than writing the code that you know, just does the thing. We are almost 10 years in this industry, and we see a progress, but it's slow. So I would love to hear from your perspective adoption of you know, exception tracking and being user centric and all that. How do you see that progression and where it's going?
1: Firstly, I'd say using an exception tracking service or tool, it doesn't negate the need for software tests. They go well together, and the best practice you can kind of have is you know, hey, this exception was reported. I'm going to go and fix it. The first thing I do is write a test that proves it fails, and then I'm going to fix it until the test passes. Right and if you just kind of get into that pattern works really well and before we built Raygun, we actually had a product called lightspeed and kind of see we like our names to sound futuristic or retro or whatever and it was an object relational mapper talks to databases like active record in ruby or entity framework in net you know everyone has one of these and of course it's also one of those sorts of things that it's not that much code but it's a very flexible system. And so, you know, when you start going, well, how could this do a join over this with concrete table inheritance where this is a computed column where you're matching? Like it turns into a bit of a nightmare. And through this process, what we ended up with was close to, I think it was about 30,000 unit tests on this object relational mapper. And the second piece that made that so powerful was we could actually make changes with so much confidence because we weren't building on like on sand. You weren't worried that you fix something way over here and the back door breaks. To be honest, I've often struggled to see software projects have enough tests that people get to the point where they can have confidence in large-scale refactorings and whatnot that they didn't just break it. And we'll talk more about unit testing in general. When we first launched Raygun as a crash reporting service only, that was at the start of 2013, and there wasn't really too many folks out there doing it. There was a couple that were really early on And I used to say, look, I'd love you to use Raygun, but frankly, if you use anything, you're probably already ahead of the pack. And early on, we would see that nearly every customer that adopted Raygun was coming from nothing. It wasn't beating a competitor. It was expanding the pie. It was actually introducing somebody to the concept. Fast forward half a decade, a little bit more. We see a little bit more stuff in the competitor category, but... I fundamentally still believe that we're still at the very early days of tracking those errors. I mean, even in CICD, I still am blown away by people who aren't using that today. It just seems so obvious as a such a huge win. Doesn't take long to see a return on that investment. I feel very strongly the same applies in crash reporting. But as I say, I wouldn't think of it as a replacement for unit testing. I think of it as a way of actually understanding what your code is doing in the wild Production really is just the biggest test environment you've got. And you might as well get the the details from that. One thing as well on unit testing, and I know we live in an age where nuance and detail is sort of frowned upon. We're all meant to have very black and white and divisive views. I don't buy into that. I see people arguing about like test-driven development or you know, like this is the one way, the one true way. And I think that's bananas. It's however works for you. I draw an analogy which is like how you like to learn. I like to learn from reading. I know people who love to learn by watching YouTube videos. It doesn't mean that I'm right and they are wrong or vice versa. There are some people who find test-driven development comes very naturally to them. You know, and if that's for them, great. I personally go slower if I do TDD. However, I religiously like to write unit tests after the fact, because it actually makes me feel good that I can get the green ticks and, you know, I go, oh, yeah, I still know how to program. I find oftentimes and kind of like that question about crash reporting in general, it's like as long as you're doing something, you're probably doing it pretty well.
0: Yeah, it's important that you're moving ahead, moving forward, you know, and you know that you are moving forward. That's also (laughs) not easy.
1: always. That is absolutely true, but that's how I often frame things at Raygun with the team. I'm like, as long as when you leave at the end of the day, something is in a better place than when you arrived in the morning, congratulations, you know, you did your job. It doesn't have to be a huge movement, it just needs to be a little bit ahead, right? (laughs) To be honest, that's one of the things I struggled with in taking on the CEO role, and I'm going to veer a little bit off into business for a bit, I'm sure some listeners are similar to me. I was so accustomed to a pull request or a commit or something being a unit of work. That was what I defined my value as like, look, here's the code that I wrote. I go home and I feel fulfilled that I had done something with my day. And now I'm in the CEO role and it might be like, cool, I had three meetings and I directed people this way and I answered these emails and you kind of go, it's very unfulfilling compared to writing code. And the problem with that was, is you can start actually going back to the things that you find fulfilling, even if they're not the right things to be done. And it took me quite a while to actually like mentally unhook, you know, my feeling of providing value from being code to actually, no, just helping the teams deliver and grow. And the reason that I thought about that from what we're talking about was that's it's kind of a bit the same with unit tests. It's like until I've done the tests and I don't really know that it's working exactly as I could, or it's not ready to push into the repo, then I'm not really done yet. There's not quite the sense of satisfaction until it's tested. Yeah. And I guess what you explained about becoming
0: a CEO, we could also argue that it's about a slower feedback loop. When you write some code, get some green tests, put in production, you know, makes you happy. You know, I did something You know, I put something forward with the CEO as a role, the, it's slower. You help some people and then, you know, two months later they achieve something and you achieve something through that. It's slower feedback loop, but yeah, it's still great or even better, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am a huge fan of things going fast. I mean, when you consider our APM and real user monitoring products are all about measuring the performance for the customer and knowing that faster is better. That was certainly a learned trait as well. I kind of joke that the mechanics in our business is usually a bit more like, If I'm having a really busy time, I'm usually setting stuff up for a lot of other people to do stuff over the next, say, three months. And then when I finish that piece, I kind of get this like, ah, however, that's the moment when everybody else is actually having to work really hard. And I'm answering questions to help ensure we kind of stay, you know, aligned and go in the right direction. But it's kind of a weird TikTok that kind of goes on a little bit. I'm sure if some of my team were on here, they'd say, wait, when does the breather come? But uh, <laughs> 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 but still, <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: What's maybe something that's exciting that's coming up on Ringo inside? Is there
1: something big you're working on, iterating on small things? Yeah. So, I mean, talking about slow feedback loops, at the end of last year, I sort of laid out for everybody the sort of five-year strategy for the business. You know, thinking I have to wait half a decade to see if we actually achieve it. That's a slow feedback loop. We obviously break it down. In general, the company at the moment is firing on all cylinders. We've got a lot of stuff coming. We're about to overhaul our user section. So one thing that we do in our products that's probably a little bit different to a lot of the general monitoring, DevOpsy, whatever the heck you want to call the category of tools, is that we try to put the customer right in the product. So it's not spooky, weird stuff like Google does. You have to choose to opt into it. We are GDPR compliant. We kind of comply with all this stuff. We're not doing anything sketchy with the data. We can choose to identify who the customers are. Now, the great thing about this is you can go into this section and actually kind of go, OK, well, here's a VIP customer. How many errors do they have? What's the average load time? What do they do navigating around and actually understand that? Similarly, when you go and look at things like the error dashboards, we say, don't worry about the number of errors, worry about the number of affected customers for this particular error type that's occurred, because that's who you need to fix it for. So, by example, you might have an error that's occurred a thousand times and impacted one customer who has it in a loop, or you might have an error that's occurred a thousand times and affected a thousand people. You need to prioritize towards helping a thousand people. And so we push all of that stuff right up into Raygun. You can actually explore all the stuff about your customers in there. So that's going to be cool to come out. We just launched our APM product support for the Ruby on Rails. Well, actually Ruby, because it works with things like Sidekick and Rails and whatever you want. We're launching support for Node.js before Christmas. That'll be out. The crash reporting stuff. We're actually overhauling the ingestion pipeline at the moment to make it super scalable. So Raygun today processes I think we peak around a billion API calls an hour. Some of the world's biggest brands run their stuff through us, but that has always meant there's an optimization layer. And I won't lie, it definitely appeals to the nerd of me. I know the listeners don't get the video, and you might be able to see it there. It's way in the background. I actually have a copy of Michael Abrash's Graphics Programming Black Book, which is all about optimizing assembly code for uh, high-performance graphics in the 90s. Like I love that stuff. So the team are working on that for our crash reporting to take it to the next level. i have already done it for APM and RUM. So a lot of stuff both behind the scenes and for the customers. But like I say, even though I don't write code on the products these days like I used to, In many ways, I think I have a job where I basically get to go to Wonderland every day and just see this amazing stuff coming out. And that's really, really fulfilling for me. So, yeah, there are a few things that are coming up. Let me bounce the question back to you. What's coming up at Semaphore? I can say that at the moment, the team is
0: also in that nerdy area, which appeals to engineers, you know, extremely. We are also optimizing... um, something regarding our response times in the app and the scaling problems are always super interesting for engineers so yeah we are kind of in the let's say database scaling area making sure that everything is still running fast with all the jobs that we are running and so on so i can completely understand the analogy with the assembly book (laughs) (laughs) we have like two big things if you want to insult someone who is running a CI business, let's say you could say that it's a glorified best script runner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> who says that? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So what we are trying to do is get as far as away from that as possible and provide some high level, you know, insights into how your code base is doing and how your tests are performing. So we are trying to come up with a layer which should come in, let's say, probably Q1 next year, which should give you the insights into test suit. you know, because we have a lot of the data and customers are asking for it. So to figure out which tests are failing, how often they are failing, what are some brittle tests? What are the flaky tests that you have in your test suit, What is the group of tests that is holding your team back from moving faster into production? So that's one big area. And the other area is generally providing people with tools and abstracts to create their pipelines more easier we don't know how it will be called yet now we call it sam for packages which would be like you know like ruby gems like the gems for your pipeline that you can pull in and have things like sub pipelines and commonly defined steps and also what people really want to do especially in bigger organizations is to share those pipelines across the organization so it's like a not a public gem you can view it as a private gem that we are maintaining and then you know, all the other people who are onboarding, starting new project, new microservices, which is a big thing with a lot of people, a lot of people exploring that, how to abstract certain parts of pipelines.
1: So those are like two really big things for us that we're working on. Well, I can definitely say that the first point about the tests and finding the flaky ones, that would actually be very valuable at Raygun. We've had a few flaky tests in recent times that I know a few team members are working on. I like to think that oftentimes when you're building tools for software teams, look, everybody has dashboards. There's always information there. But I always think the best way for these things to work is if, in a weird way, the team almost feels like it's a virtual team member. Like it's helping the team go faster by being somewhat proactive with those insights and helping them understand things that maybe weren't obvious. You kind of know tests can be flaky, but which ones are they? Or you know, when that starts to become flaky, come and tell me about it so that I can get on it before we've sort of realized that this test has failed every Tuesday for the last three months, but nobody noticed that pattern until now. You know, that's the sort of thing software can be really good at, as I'm sure it's the same as Semaphore you know, as you're scaling these engineering teams and you sit there sometimes and you're like, you know what, it's going to cost this much to add one more engineer. And that person's going to come with management over here, they're going to need hardware, they need software licenses, all this sort of stuff. And let's say you had a team of 20 engineers, you know, you actually only need one piece of software to add 5% more effectiveness and that replaces the need for the person. And the software is probably going to be a heck of a lot easier to manage. Now, that obviously works better and better at scale, But that's kind of how I think of it. I'd love people to be like, we have Raygun because it helps our team stay small, but achieve more. That's kind of part of the vision. Yeah, when setting our
0: engineering management OKRs for this quarter, which is just behind us, the planning sessions, we have like those two concepts that we call scale the team horizontally and vertically. Horizontally is like adding more people and vertically is enabling them, you know, to grow. And this piece of software, which is also bringing up some practice, and uh, some f- additional feedback loops that we talked about is probably in that category of scaling vertically, as you mentioned. Yeah.
1: You said something earlier that you were going to steal something from me. We do okay, ours, but I think I'm going to steal your horizontal vertical piece on there. I like that idea. Yeah. <laughs> great. So thank you, JD. It was
0: a pleasure talking to you. We exchanged a few things that we can keep using, steal from
1: each other, <laughs> and that's great. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity to be on here and to have a chat. So thank you very much.